Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Full Circle, Finding Your Way Home. While we continue our exploration of trust and the many ways it manifests in our lives, I want to dive into the sensitive topic of infidelity and the journey to restoring trust after betrayal in a marriage. This is a subject that many listeners may be intimately familiar with, having either lived it firsthand or having felt the side effects of a friend or a family member's affair. Here to share her personal story is Jen Waite, author of the international bestseller, A Beautiful, Terrible Thing, a memoir which details how her life was turned upside down when she discovered crushing details about her husband's affair. As if discovering this infidelity wasn't painful enough, Jen also became aware of a hidden personality disorder. Jen joins me from her home in Maine, and throughout our conversation, she shares how her fairy tale marriage became a living nightmare. We discuss how she found out he'd been unfaithful, the impact his secret life had on her, and the steps she took to restore her trust after infidelity. Jen shares some amazing insights from looking out for red flags, getting uncomfortable by doing the self-work required to rebuild, and trusting that there is always light at the end of the tunnel. I hope this conversation is a letter of courage to anyone in a similar situation that as dark and terrible as things may seem in the midst of betrayal, there is potential for a beautiful new beginning. Welcome to the Full Circle podcast, Finding Your Way Home. Today, we're talking about restoring trust after infidelity, and my wonderful guest is Jen Waite. Jen grew up on the coast of Maine, and after graduating from Vassar College, she moved to New York City for 10 years, where she first worked in finance and then pursued a career in acting and modelling. She moved back to Maine in 2015, shortly after the birth of her daughter, Vivian. She is the author of the international bestseller, A Beautiful, Terrible Thing, which details the discovery that her ex-husband was leading a double life. Her debut novel, Survival Instincts, was a New York Post best book of the week, and she is currently at work on her second novel. So welcome, Jen. So nice to have you here today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really glad you're here. And today, as we said, we're going to be talking around restoring trust. And so I wonder, could we maybe just start off with that topic of the concept of restoring trust and what does that mean to you? So I was always a very, very trusting kid and um, young adult. Um, I grew up with no reason really to distrust. And so, you know, not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think that I always gave everyone and anyone the complete benefit of the doubt. Um, without really, you know, knowing that person. So loved ones and strangers alike, I would just see the best in everyone, which is a great way to live as long as, you know, everyone is trustworthy, um, which I found out in my, you know, mid-20s was not the case. Um, And so when I went through such a devastating betrayal uh, by someone that I really unequivocally trusted fully, it made me not, um, you know, untrusting, but I went through this kind of recalibration of 
really building myself back up and putting boundaries into place for the first time and really needing someone to earn my trust before I would give it fully. So for me, I never, um, you know, I never decided, had a, had a thought of I can never trust again, which I think is really normal and common after experiencing such a betrayal from, you know, someone that you really, I really thought was my best friend and my life partner and, you know, the father of my child. I never had that thought of I can never trust again. It was more that I wanted to figure out, you know, what I had missed when I went into this relationship with that person and how I could better protect myself in the future. And so, you know, now as far as being able to trust again, I almost feel like I can trust more fully than ever before because the people that I now let into my life, um, I, you know, I make sure that that, that they earn my trust and it's not like some kind of, um, test or, you know, like I'm holding everyone at arm's length, but I definitely have my eyes wide open now. And, um, I just have boundaries in place where as soon as I start to feel like something's off or, you know, there's some red flags popping up, which I never even knew about before. Honestly, I was pretty naive as far as, you know, red flags, boundaries, self-worth, all that type of stuff. I just was kind of happy-go-lucky and didn't really think about any of that. But now I'm just very aware uh, when someone, you know, when their actions and their words align or they don't align. And that's kind of how I have started to navigate um restoring trust and actually being able to fully trust someone and, and really give my heart again, because I think that that's, um, you know, how, how sad would that be if then I went through life, you know, never trusting or never being able to love fully, um, someone new, it's like, well, I don't want to let that person win who has be, who has betrayed me. I want to just be able to, um, trust in a smarter, better way. Um, so, that, you know, kind of an over, like a bird's eye view of how I restored trust after, you know, surviving such a betrayal. But it did take a while. And for me, my process was doing a lot of research um, into, you know, narcissism, narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder and, you know, red flags and traits of, uh, people who might be on the spectrum of having a personality disorder just so that I could educate myself and not get into that same situation again. It's lovely to hear you talk like that because I can imagine the pain and that sense of real, as you said, real betrayal and the trauma that that brings of such an event happening, that it could lead you down that road where you just think, hey, hang on, I'm not going to trust anybody ever again. And so it's lovely to hear that you know, you didn't want to go as severe as that. But I do know that others tend to do that also as well. So I suppose you mentioned earlier on that, you know, you were quite naive in your earlier, you know, in your earlier experiences. So tell me just a little bit more about what you're meaning by that. I don't want to put, you know, a blanket statement that it's a bad thing necessarily to have such a what I thought was a really ideal, like idealistic childhood. But I grew up on the coast of Maine in a small town. My parents were really 
great parents. I, they definitely had flaws. And I can now see maybe, you know, one of the flaws is that they did protect me from, I think, some of the, you know, truths of the world as far as the world not being perfect and people not being perfect. But the way that I grew up, everyone just in my little circle, at least, um, was great. And I didn't have any reason to really think anything bad about the world. And nothing really bad had happened to me for the first, uh, you know, 20 or so years of my life. So again, not that that's a bad thing, but I was living almost like this very idyllic um, childhood. And so I think that I really saw people through rose-colored glasses, um, and especially when it came to romantic relationships, I wanted to see the best and kind of filter out what I didn't want to see. Um, and that's definitely, a, I think, a trait that is just not unique to me, but something that I grew up doing. And I, when I met my ex-husband, there were many, many red flags that now in hindsight, I can look back and pinpoint immediately. But because of, you know, the way that I was, the person that I was, and, you know, being 25, and really just kind of seeing the whole world through rose-colored glasses, I definitely filtered out the things that I didn't want to see. And that is something that I then had to, you know, when everything kind of shattered, I had to go back um, in therapy and really work on with my therapist. And that was really difficult to do because I think that the most, the scariest work is not necessarily, you know, figuring out what's wrong with the person who betrayed you, but just figuring out your own vulnerabilities and um, what made you, you know, I guess, receptive to a relationship like that. Um, so that was a good year of, of therapy. And I mean, more than a year, I'm still doing it every day. But when we really dug into it, it took about a year for me to really figure out what was in my own personality that drew me to someone who really, I mean, should have that, that should have been shut down immediately. Um, looking back on but it. It's so interesting, isn't it? And I, and I think when you go through therapy and you look at it through that different lens, then it's a lot easier to see more clearly, isn't it, about those red flags, as you said. But I would imagine, like I've been oh, yeah. over my years, you know, younger years, when you fall in love and you kind of fall hook, line and sinker, you know, you don't see those red flags. You just choose what you want to see because you're kind of just being happy in the moment and getting a carried away with, with the relationship and and the good feelings that it brings. Absolutely. And especially because I hadn't been through a betrayal before, um, I didn't, I really didn't have any guard up whatsoever. And I had grown up seeing movies and television shows and reading books that really romanticize a lot of these red flags that, you know, we can maybe get into in a little bit. But basically, you know, seeing in Hollywood or in, just in movies, TV, that 
these were like the hallmarks of like a fairy tale beginning. And so that was what I thought it was. I really thought that the intensity of it and the emotional roller coaster and the triangulation and the love bombing, I thought that all of those were just this was what a real love story is supposed to look like and supposed to feel like. And so now as a grown woman um, and having some experiences under my belt, it's so clear to me when something is not right. But when I first went into, you know, that relationship with my ex-husband, I did not know about any of the, these things, you know, these, these, um, traits or these patterns of behavior, I had no idea. And so you talk about red flags. So tell us a little bit more about those and and through the work that you did, how did those come to fruition in your discussions and learning around about yourself? Yeah, I think that when I when I first uh, met my ex-husband, the feeling was so intense and it felt so good to be put on this pedestal. I had never really felt that before. And the amount of attention and flattery and just the intensity of it all felt really, really good. Um, but now, you know, that is a sign of, of really a narcissistic or a psychopathic person um, in the beginning of a relationship. There's really three stages. The first stage is idealize. And it's just making you feel like you're absolutely on top of the world and the way that they talk to you and look at you and just inundate you with flattery and love feels so good. But there's also like this little tiny voice in the pit of your stomach saying, how could this be genuine after? I mean, we're talking like within the first week or two, feeling like you're just absolutely in love. Um and like this person is just everything. So that was one of the first red flags that I now, when, you know, when someone else tells me about a relationship where it's just absolutely just insane intensity, but wonderful. And I just, uh, I, I want that person to be careful because in the first few weeks or first few months really is when you should have your eyes open and go into things slow and really be able to, you know, figure out if this is someone, if this is someone that you want to have a relationship with or be involved with. And by having it move so fast and so intense, it creates this false sense of intimacy and a false sense of that, like the stakes are so high already. So within the first couple weeks, you feel like it's a life or death situation almost of being with this person. And that's really how it felt with my ex-husband. But again, I just thought that that was true passion, you know, true love. Um, You know, I had never experienced anything like that before. So that is called love bombing. And that is definitely a red flag to be aware of. Um, it's 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 difficult though because you always hear about the honeymoon phase and you are supposed to be excited about dating someone new um, and having those great feelings. But 
there's a difference between um, being excited and like having butterflies and just having this really, really intense relationship build and build and build. Um, and it really being feeling like an emotional ro- roller coaster uh, from day one. Did it feel like that whole experience just kind of took over your life at that moment in time and it was like all or nothing? Absolutely. That was, I mean, he was, yes, he was my everything. Um, and I hadn't really felt anything like that before as far as a relationship goes. Uh, it, it really did. It took over my life. That's how I felt. Um, and I felt like I would never, ever meet anyone like him again. And this was, this was it, you know, this was my chance to have this amazing love story. And I had never really felt that way before. I had always kind of, you know, dated, but never felt, you know, really, really excited. And so I thought this is my chance and I have to grab this chance. Um, it just, the stakes felt so heightened. I, I can hear that. I was going to, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, I can hear that when you're talking about it as well. You can hear that, that real sense of that everything was so invested in it. It so. was so intense. It was like I wrapped up my entire self-worth based on this relationship, um, which is always, always a really bad sign. <laughs> you know, um, of, of course, at the time, I just felt like I was completely, totally falling in love. And like, this was the man of my dreams. And so I would say that was the first few weeks of just this intensity, this love bombing, where I just was on top of the world. But also, you know, this kind of logical part of me was screaming from within saying, how can this be real after a week or two of knowing someone? How can how can they be so in like, so into you. I mean, it's hard to explain. It's not even like into you. It's he was making me feel like this was like a Romeo Juliet love story, like life or death. Like we are just meant to be. I was, you know, sent to him and I was the missing piece of his life and blah, blah, blah. I mean, the things that he would say were really really flattering to hear, but also objectively crazy (laughs) (laughs) looking back on it. Um, But in the moment, I was just so I was I was like, basically feeling blissed out and didn't didn't want to listen to that voice that was telling me, you know, slow down, put the brakes on. Um, And then the second red flag, you know, of course, they're not going to go in order necessarily, but just for the purpose of of talking about them, the second red flag uh, was when he started to kind of introduce little by little what I call sob stories and what I've heard elsewhere referred to as like a pity play. I think Martha Stout, who wrote The Sociopath Next Door, calls it a pity play where if you... If you um, kind of confront the person because inevitably that like love bombing, flattery, whatnot, there will be a moment in time when something doesn't really match up, like their actions aren't quite matching up with their words. And so when you confront that person with any type of um, bad behavior or just, you know, mismatch in words and actions, instead of being able to have 
a conversation where they own up or apologize or explain their behavior, they will redirect the conversation to be um, something about themselves terrible that has happened and and kind of draw on your sympathy. So that was another thing that happened uh, very close to the beginning of the relationship. And it just makes you feel like you have no right to to be upset anymore because, um, because, you know, this terrible thing has happened and it's time to focus on, on that person. So that was another, another red flag that now, as far as, you know, like restoring trust and being able to trust again, it's so great for me to, to have done all this research and to have educated myself because, you know, I stayed single for, a good four years after my divorce, but I did date a little bit. And it's so clear now when, you know, not necessarily that these, that these guys are all narcissists or psychopaths, but just when someone is a little bit shady or doesn't have the best intentions, it's so apparent if you, you know, just ask a very simple question and they can't give you back a genuine answer. And I don't know why, as especially I think as women, we are willing to accept or make excuses um, for this type of this type of response, but it's it's something that now I can just immediately say, okay, that's fine, but that's not, you know, that's not what I want in my life. So um, just any kind of like really defensive response or, you know, switching the narrative, redirecting, um, anything like that. It's just, it happens so often. And I think that it's, it's just something that I have been, I had accepted because I was, you know, not valuing myself highly enough to actually, be like, well, that's not how I want to be treated. That's not how I, you know, how I would treat someone else. Um, so that was definitely another, um, you know, red flag that I really, I just totally overlooked because I was completely under the spell of, I feel so terrible for you and how can I help you? Um, and then, I would say to also look out for, um, you know, this is a really obvious, obvious one, but just little lies um, or little mistruths. It's something that, again, I, I would always give the benefit of the doubt and always try to see the best in him. But there were instances where just very small things wouldn't match up and they weren't even like, they weren't even large things, but just very small things. Like this isn't, this isn't really like a real example, but even just like, what did you have for lunch? And it it won't be the truth. Um, And that's definitely a sign of, you know, pathological lying. And that's something that I found out later. Um, My husband was a pathological liar. So my ex-husband was a pathological liar. So, um, all of those things were just so 
uh, are so obvious to me now, but I had no idea at the time. And I can understand, especially when you say you got, you know, you get carried away and, and, and you feel so, like I said, on a pedestal and you just get carried away with the story. And it's interesting, you said about, you know, why is it that sometimes we would just accept things as women? And I do wonder that myself, you know, over the years when I've been in different relationships myself, that there is something, I don't know whether it's the way that we're conditioned or the love stories that we've seen in the movies, you know, but we do want this mm-hmm. perfect whirlwind love romance to get swept off your feet, this fairy tale romance. And, and that isn't always the case. So you, you obviously have done a lot of work on yourself, as you've said, and you went through therapy and you said you was in therapy for a, a good year. And you said that, you know, there was something there around drawing out some of those vulnerabilities, but also bringing back some of that self-worth. And I wondered if you could share some of that mm-hmm. around self-worth and how you've built upon that over the years since you have divorced and been through the experiences that you've had. Yeah, definitely. That was the most important part. And I I was in therapy for years, I think um, years and years, and I still have you know my therapist number if I ever need to go back. The, the year that I mentioned, I think, was um, just really digging into the the self-worth and boundaries part of it um but as far as being in therapy yeah, I was def- I was definitely in there for a good solid three to four years and it was very very helpful and I was really lucky that my therapist um immediately I think I had two or three consultations and the therapist that I ended up with you know listened to me and um heard my story and then immediately said I know that it will be really hard to do this and I don't necessarily expect you to do this immediately, but you need to be going no contact with this person or as close as possible to no contact with this person. Um, You know, that's your goal. That's your aim. Whereas a, a couple other therapists had mentioned like, getting him in there with us for couples counseling or, you know, you know, is it something that I wanted to do to restore the relationship, to rebuild the relationship? So that really, uh, hearing, hearing that really scared me and, and made me think like, okay, maybe this is not what I think it is. Cause I was already request- questioning my own reality. Um, so having a, the third therapist, my therapist that I ended up going with say, this is not someone, this is not a healthy person and you need to be going no contact with this person was really helpful. Um, and you know, for the first at least six months to a year, I would say that we just talked about what had happened and explored, you know, the details of the relationship and the betrayal and like how I was coping and maybe I could find healthier ways to, cope because I was really getting down in the details of um, just being really obsessed with uh, his life and just trying to figure out how I could have missed all these things, like who he was as a person and what was real from our relationship and what wasn't real. And that was really important for me to kind of understand and to investigate. But eventually my therapist you know, did kind of push me towards the self-work, which was absolutely the most difficult part of the process. But um, at the same time, that is what led me out, like to the other side of things where I was able to find closure for myself. Um, So she, I think the first thing she kind of said was, 
in one of our sessions, she was listening to me talk about my ex-husband and she said, I'm, I think, you know, I'm seeing a pattern of you filtering out the bad qualities of someone or, or filtering out, um, you know, any negative aspects that you don't want to see in life and really just focusing on the good. And, you know, another word for that, I guess, could be optimism. But she said, this seems like extreme optimism to a point where it could be hurting you. And so I kind of walked away from that session, like totally my mind kind of blown and thinking about my whole life and, you know, how I was raised and my parents and like their coping mechanisms and my whole family kind of tends to do this. And I remember talking to my mom on the phone about it and she also had this really like, oh my gosh, I'm having a little bit of a panic attack moment because she had realized that she does that as well. And we both do that. And, you know, to the point where it could be a detriment. Um, and that, I just remember that as clearly as being the first time that my therapist pushed me towards that self-work instead of it all being about not like, woe is me, but basically all of our other sessions had just been about, oh my gosh, I am now a single mom to a baby and have moved home with my parents and like my life is upside down and where do I go from here? And, that was the first time that she kind of said, okay, it's time for you to work on yourself um, and figure, you know, figure some of this out for yourself. And so that was the first kind of step into it. And then from there, I really just, I really just sat in like that uncomfortable feeling for a really long time. Um, it was, it's really uncomfortable to kind of dissect your own beliefs and, your own sense of self and realize that there are, you know, you, you, you probably, or might have these false beliefs or false, you know, ideals and where did you get them from? And like to kind of deconstruct that and whether it's, you know, from society that's telling us that we should have this like, fairy tale whirlwind romance and um, put like marriage first as, you know, as the ideal of, you know, your ad adulthood um, and just really breaking that down and kind of building myself back up. That took a very long time and it was really painful and I had never done that work before and I had never, um, even heard of boundaries, like what does that even mean? I mean, it's still it's still some something that's somewhat intangible, but I had never even, you know, heard of that before. So I really just sat in that metaphorically for a really long time and um, thought about, you know, what are my actual beliefs based on experience, what I've gone through, um, and you know what, what types of people do I actually want to let into my life? And, you know, what are some tools that I now have in order to, um, kind of, I guess, repel the people that I don't want in my life. And that really did take a couple of years. And then, you know, obviously I also wrote at the same time that I was 
really going through this, really grieving in the thick of it, I started writing just as my own outlet to like, just get everything out. And that was also extremely helpful. Um, just writing. And I didn't expect for it to become a memoir or for it to, to be published. I never sat down with that intention. I just wanted to get everything out on the page and really understand what had happened in my relationship. Um, but that was also very, very helpful for me to see everything kind of almost chronologically as it happened and then be able to um, really deconstruct the relationship and, and how I got to where I was. And then I remember when I did get a book deal, which was very exciting, but again, it all happened so quickly that I don't really... I wasn't, the whole thing was almost like an out-of-body experience. So I wasn't really that cognizant of what was, of like what the long-term um, ramifications would be. Um, but I have, I was so lucky to have an editor who also really pushed me to um, write about the growth that I, you know, that I went through because of this experience. And that that's the whole third part pretty much of the memoir. And she really, really was adamant that we have that be like a sizable section of the memoir because she's, I mean, in hindsight, she's totally right that that's what I hope people are going to take away um, at the end of the book is to see, well, this really terrible thing happened, but you can get to the other side of it and it can become something that, you know, actually pushes you to be like this more, uh, like this deeper person, you know? And so I hope that that's, I hope that that's what people take away from it. I'm sure they will. I mean, I've read it and I would, I absolutely believe that's exactly what they'll take away from it. And it's so interesting that getting it down on paper, you mentioned there around that whole sense of what is the reality of it. And I think it's so difficult when you're dealing with the grief of the circumstance and situation to still get caught up between the perception versus the reality. And I think what you said there and shared, which I'm sure the listeners would really connect with, and I certainly have as well, is that sense of journaling, getting it down on paper, getting it out of your head and out of your body can really, really help. There's something about seeing it in black and white for what it actually is. I find for myself, I've always found that been a really healing process for me personally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I remember my mom saying to me at a certain point after I found out about my ex-husband's affair and his, what I I guess I can call a double life. Um, I remember her saying, you know, you can never, when you go into any kind of relationship, friendship, romantic, whatnot, you can never know with a hundred percent certainty that, you know, they are who they are or that they're trustworthy or that they're quote unquote good person, but you can certainly stack the deck in your favor and, with my ex-husband, it was like I almost did the opposite of that. I, every bad quality, I was just, I just decided to ignore and was totally enamored. But I think that's really true what she said, and um, and that's 
how I feel now, you know, being in a relationship, my first real long-term relationship, it's like, yeah, there's no way to 100% know, but oh my goodness. I mean, as far as red flags, it's like I've been looking for green, like green flags, like this person that I'm now with, it's like green flag, green flag, green flag, green flag. And it's so refreshing to, to, to be with someone who is just so grounded and, um, treats me like I treat other people, which sounds so simple to look for in someone else. But I think that especially like empaths or very empathetic people are actually drawn towards the opposite for whatever reason. And so that is a huge part of me really being able to trust again and feeling really secure is that I go into new relationships in a very kind of grounded way um, where it's like there's no rush and it's not the end of the world if it doesn't work out um, because I know that I will be fine and I've dealt with worse and just having that like sense of self-worth going into it makes all the difference really because you're coming from this place of strength and power um, and I took it very slow with my current partner and there were still like, it was still so exciting and I liked him so, so much, but it was never this emotional roller coaster where I felt sick to my stomach. It was a very exciting, but truly like satisfying feeling rather than, Oh, I feel, I kind of feel like I'm going to throw up. (laughs) (laughs) amazing and you know insight is is just such a remarkable thing isn't it Mm -hmm. and the lessons that we learn from our experiences and I wondered if you'd be happy to share when you look back through all the self-work you've done on yourself the realizations that you've had what have you learned that are you you know you're using now in everyday life putting myself on a pedestal I guess um which sounds strange but I don't need someone else to do that for me I really feel like just owning your own power and your own um, that like your own value and how much how much value I have as a person. And if I'm going to give myself or share myself with someone else, well, they have to earn that. It's not something that, you know, I'll just freely dole out anymore. It's it's something that I'm very protective of now. And I I hope that my hope is for everyone to feel that way about themselves because I think that so many people get into these relationships because they don't have a strong sense of self-worth and you know are allowing this this person to dictate to them their own self-worth. And now it's the opposite. I decide, you know, my self-worth, my, you know, my power. And if, if, if someone is 
willing to earn it, then that's great. And if not, then that's fine too. And I have no qualms about, you know, not having that person in my life. Um, And just knowing that, you know, at the end of the day, you will be fine and you don't need someone else to save you. Like I thought that that was what, you know, the fairy tale that I thought that I was engaging in with my ex-husband. You don't need someone to save you. You can, you can save yourself. Thank you for sharing that. Because when you think about when people are coming through life in general, and, and especially when you've had something happen, whether it's betrayal, a cheat, or whatever you might call it, there is this sense of I suppose from what you've said there, this sense of really trusting yourself that you are good enough as you are and that everything mm-hmm. you have, that you, you can validate yourself, as you've said, you can you can trust yourself, you can value yourself. And I think there's something there about, and maybe I don't know if this applies to you, but something I've done over the years is to learn to love myself first before seeking mm-hmm. that from anybody else. And I think once you can master that, mm-hmm. it opens up a whole different just a whole different conversation, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly it. Trusting yourself and loving yourself. And then, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, then you can actually, you know, do the same for other people. But until you really trust yourself or love yourself, you're not going to have an equal relationship with anyone. Thank you. Obviously, it's been an amazing conversation and congratulations on the book and obviously the writing of the new book. And hopefully that will be even more bigger success. But I've been asking everybody the same questions. And I wondered if I could ask those with you too, just before we Mm -hmm. close our conversation today. And you've you've shared already the biggest lesson that you've learned so far, you know, kind of one of the biggest lessons that you've learned. But sometimes we will have our off days. And I'm sure, like you said, you're doing therapy every day for yourself and still working on your self-care and looking after yourself in that way. But if you do have a wobble or you you do have a setback, do you have any principles or a statement that you say to yourself that will help you get back on track? Yeah, I definitely have wobbles all the time still, (laughs) like everyone does, I'm sure. It's just now it's really just nice to know that even in the darkest of times, I know that there will be a light and that really you can't have one without the other. You can't really have these great, amazing, happy moments without the bad moments. And so as you know, it's easier said than done. Um, but when I'm having these bad days or bad moments, just to know that I've been there before and that I have, you know, gotten to the other side of it and that I just, everything, you know, everything will work out. That's kind of how I, how I try to go about my life now. Lovely. What advice, if any, could you share to the listeners who perhaps have lost their trust either in themselves or in, in others? What would you say to them? I would say that the most important part of my journey in restoring trust was really just looking deeply into myself and staying in that place of, you know, that uncomfortable pain or sadness and really staying there instead of, you know, going out and getting in another relationship right away or, you know, trying to repress it or not talk about it or not feel it or drinking or, you know, whatever, 
Um, though I definitely had glasses of wine, so don't feel bad if you're doing that. Um, but I would say that if you can just kind of stay there and really, you know, build yourself back up from, from the ground up and, you know, really like we were talking about, figure out how to love yourself and trust yourself. And that is going to come from within you and not from someone else. Um, and it's really hard. It does not feel good to do that self-work. It feels very uncomfortable. Um, for me, it was really uncomfortable to, you know, to really look closely at my vulnerabilities and, and why I wanted to be put on a pedestal and why I was attracted to someone who behaved badly like that. Um, but it was so important for me to do that self-work. And I hope that, um, you know, that anyone in, in this type of situation will, will also just stay in that place for as long as it takes. And then also just to know that, that there is absolutely light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and, you're going to get, you're not, you're probably never going to get closure from the other person, but you can absolutely find closure from yourself. And I have a hundred percent closure now and just feel like it's almost mm -hmm. like a rebirth mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. It's funny because I was listening to a podcast day with Eckhart Tolle and he was saying something similar that usually when there's a disaster or when there's chaos in one's mm -hmm. life, when we come out the other end, it is similar to having a rebirth and you really do find your true self. Yes. You can connect with yourself in a different way and it gives you insight, yes. so much insight that you would never have got if you wouldn't have had the experience. So although mm. it's tragic and traumatic at the time when you come out the other side, in a funny kind of way, mm. you're sometimes better off mm. from having that experience. Yes. Yes. That's how I feel. That's absolutely how I feel. And that's my friend just mentioned him the other day. I haven't listened to him, but now this is the second time that, so I'm definitely going to take a listen. <laughs> Sounds right at my alley. Pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just so interesting. He did it. It was just a podcast he was doing himself on the, the differences of, of chaos in life and the disruption and what happens when we come out the other end. So that sense of the light at the end of the tunnel just really resonated. Thank you so much for your time. I've really loved having this conversation. Thank you for sharing all what you have today. And I'm sure certainly I've taken a lot away from this and I know our listeners will too. But thank you, Jen. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, it would mean the world to me if you would leave a review and subscribe to be notified each week of new episodes. Until next time, stay well, invite joy and curiosity into your life. See you soon. Mm -hmm.